Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Dialects Gun Podcast, where we critically engage in philosophy and correlate philosophy research to contemporary issues at an easy to understand and digestible level. My name is Sara Shavastava, and I'm your host. This week, we're joined by Professor Robert Smithson, who is an associate professor in philosophy at UNC Wilmington. Hi, Professor Smithson. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on your podcast. Of course, thank you for your time and for being here today. Before we begin our discussion, I ask everyone who comes onto this show, this show um, the same question, mm-hmm. and I want to ask you as well. How did you get into philosophy, and what stood out to you? Um, I guess I first kind of got a, started thinking that philosophy was cool because in high school, I read a book called Gödel Escher Bach, um, which is kind of uh, cognitive science slash philosophy and got me thinking about consciousness. So I thought that was cool, but it still wasn't um, on my radar as a thing to pursue a career in. So when I went to college, I was a physics major and I intended to go maybe do a PhD in physics, but I kind of burnt out of, of that. And in the meantime, I had been taking philosophy classes kind of on the side. I had some really good professors. Those were kind of my fun courses. So then in my fourth year of college, as I was just thinking, okay, what do I do now if I'm not going to do the physics? I thought, I've really enjoyed all the philosophy. Um, So I uh, decided to give it a shot and sent out some applications, and um, I love it. That's awesome. So in, like, I guess, taking physics, was there some sort of philosophical aspect of physics uh, that you enjoyed, or was it just because you took side classes of philosophy that you were introduced to philosophy? No, I mean, yeah, as your question suggests, there's all these fascinating philosophical questions about raised by physics and how to interpret quantum mechanics and how to think about space and time. And so I just found like, you know, the way it works for physics is everyone has their, this is probably true of every physics class across the country, but the problem sets are due Friday morning and everyone's pulling the all night or, you know, the night before to finish it. I would just keep getting distracted talking to my physics friends, you know, but like, what are the laws of nature and stuff like that? And they're like, that's philosophy. You know, like go solve the Schrodinger. So anyway, yeah. um, It's been fun. Now I get to teach courses um, on like space and time. So um, it's a link back to the interest that I have in physics. Um, so it's really fun. Yeah. I think there's also like, it's just interesting in the ways in which that like science correlates directly with philosophy, which is like mm-hmm. a lot of people don't really expect that to be the case. Um, but there's like a lot of cool research there. Um, and so today we're going to be talking about something different than physics, uh, idealism. Um, but I wanted to ask you like, before we get into any some specific questions, like just the definition of idealism within the philosophical sense um, in like philosophy, what is idealism and how does it differ from more traditional um, uses of idealism? Okay, yeah, great. Um, So within the philosophy of mind, so when people are thinking about consciousness and how it relates to the brain and stuff, so there's standard positions like materialism that thinks that the brain kind of settles everything and consciousness is um, depends on that. And then there's the dualist who thinks that there's uh, the physical facts and the facts about the brain. And then there's the separate thing, consciousness. Then idealism is this view that is not as popular today, but historically it was very, very prominent um, in modern philosophy in the 17th, 18th centuries and such, which is to kind of reverse the materialist view and say that consciousness is, kind of fundamental and um, that the facts about the physical world 
ultimately depend on that. So it's a view on consciousness and its relation to the world outside of us. Now, there's also, it's not the only way that the word idealism is used. So there's obviously like the ordinary sense in which someone can be idealistic. And that's someone who kind of cares about ideals, especially moral ideals. So that's also a, a definitely a standard use of the word in philosophy. And as it happens, some of my more recent research is, is, is related to idealism in that sense. But I think that those are kind of two different senses of idealism that's good to distinguish. One is a view of kind of about mind and the world, and the other has to do with, you know, um, our preoccupation with ideals when we're doing ethics. So I guess like on that first topic of uh, like what, what we have to do or what we interpret about the world almost, um, how exactly does idealism come into play? Like, is it, for example, like I'm more familiar with, I guess, the traditional sense in which we have like certain ideals attached to ethics and stuff like that. Um, but how exactly is like idealism present itself in those kind of cases in those areas? Like, what does it mean to be an idealist? Yeah. So um Here's one way to think about um, the, yeah, the way to think about it is there have been many, um, ever since the rise of, you know, modern physics with Newton and Leibniz and people like that, there have been all sorts of ways in which the results from the natural sciences like physics, but also from vision science and all these other things have seemed to kind of radically change our view of what the world outside of us is like. So many people think that now that we have modern physics, you know, we naively think that um, objects in the world have these vivid, sensuous colors, you know, pink and red and blue that are just out there right in front of us. But then after you start learning about, you know, photons and the causal chain between objects, it, it turns out that a lot of people think that on the modern scientific view of the world, there really aren't colors in the way that we naively think kind of out there in the world. It's more like there are surface reflectance properties of different objects that reflect photons that then give rise to kind of color experiences. So that's one example, but all sorts of other things as well. If you look at modern physics, uh, you know, like relativity and quantum mechanics, philosophers have argued that it radically changes how we think about space and time. So um, it's space and time are kind of nothing like they ordinarily seem to us. And some would even go so far, there've been people who've argued that on the modern scientific worldview, there aren't even things like macroscopic objects and stuff. So I give you all these examples. We don't need to talk about the details of them. It's just the important point is that there are all these ways in which science seems to often undermine our naive view of the world. Um, and even to kind of alienate us from the way we think of the world just based on our ordinary day-to-day -day experience. And so one way to think about idealism is idealists have been impressed by the fact that, you know, even though all these results from science seem to challenge our naive view of the world, still, when we open our eyes and just go about our day-to-day -day life, we still think like, here's this water bottle and look, there's its colors. And isn't it the closest thing in the world to us, the thing that we know best of all? So idealism in this sense is trying to kind of preserve or um, regain and um, keep safe this original kind of um, ordinary understanding of the world, despite all of these um, 
you know, threatening results from physics. And it's not that the idealist is trying to say that the physics is wrong. A lot of the historical idealists were very much, you know, were scientists themselves. So it's a way of kind of, um, you know, respecting the science and, and what we learn about the world around us from um, the natural sciences and physics, but also holding on to our common sense view of the world and try to make room for both of those. And just, I know that I've been going on and on for this, but like, this is just a general tension outside, even outside of idealism. I mean, this thing comes up with discussions of free will. It's like, you know, we do some result, we get to take MRIs and do some neuroscience. And some people think, oh, these studies show that we don't have any free will. So there's lots of cases where science has seemed to undermine how we normally think of ourselves. Um, and yet it's really hard for us to actually change how we think of ourselves. We still think that we have freedom and so on. So, so this general tension between science and our ordinary understanding of ourselves is something that really interests me. And the idealist has a specific kind of view trying to preserve both of them. So sorry for that long okay, so, response. <laughs> no, no, okay. That's totally fine. But I guess um, kind of like taking a deep dive into that relationship of preservation, I guess, of these two, two sort of, um, I guess, like, concepts uh or like i guess fields coming together um when we're thinking about like let's say a water bottle for say like i have like this blue water bottle over here Mm -hmm. i obviously interpret it to be blue but what's the value in understanding or i guess like even discussing these things like what is the benefit of saying oh we should preserve that kind of understanding of color comparative to like a physics uh understanding of color with like photons and stuff like that because obviously those aren't going to make our way into like colloquial language like we're not going to say like oh that's like i don't know different reflections um of over there like that's not how we like treat color right um so what's the benefit kind of in exploring and preserving these two ideals or like these two fields yeah so yeah that's a good question um it's important for us to, you know, on the one hand, we want to respect science and we know that science provides us with all sorts of information and has improved our lives in so many ways and provides um, a kind of sophisticated understanding of many aspects of the world that we never had any idea of. But I think that without a kind of, um, sometimes it's able to kind of push those scientific results too far and to think that they threaten or undermine our ordinary sense of ourselves in ways that um, they actually do not. So like specific concrete ones is like, you know, ask, could science answer questions about how we ought to live or something like that? I mean, some people might say, yeah, maybe if we um, do some evolutionary biology and we think about what would be best for human, uh, for the flourishing of our species, maybe that could tell us what is good or bad. But I think that, you know, there's this natural thought that um, even though evolutionary biology and stuff is great, there is this independent aspect of our lives, you know, ethics, which um, is not necessarily answered by any of the kind of experiments that we might do in evolutionary biology. We can always step back from that and think about, um, you know, still, why ought we to act that way or something like that? And the same thing goes, I think, with issues of free will. And then more basically, you know, just the way we think of ourselves as situated in the world um, as being surrounded by, other people and shapes and colors and stuff like that. So in all these cases, um, there's this worry that if you tried to think that science provides the a complete 
and the only picture of the world in every domain, then we end up alienating ourselves from a lot of the stuff that we as humans just naturally care about, whether it's in ethics or having to do with freedom or just the just world of macroscopic objects that we are all familiar with. So uh, two questions here. First, does the um, idealist suggest some sort of combination of the two where you don't like, I guess, say science is incorrect, but rather like embrace both, uh, like the human kind of generic understanding as well as a scientific understanding? And then second question being, uh, is there any relationship with uh, like truth values here um, in terms of like how idealism kind of treats truth? Um, and yeah. is there like an answer to that? Yeah, those are great questions. So as I developed the view, um, whereas I think most philosophers, when they see these threatening results from physics or whatever that seem to challenge in, in our ordinary understanding of ourselves, um, or of colors or whatever the case may be, they try to find some way to force those two understandings of ourselves together. So there's kind of like the world as we normally experience it in everyday life, and then the scientific world, and they try to kind of mush those together and so how our ordinary ways of talking can still be true. So the, one, the way you might do that, just for the example of color, is you end up saying that colors are not the sensuous kind of vivid you know, beautiful things that we think of ourselves as looking at, but they end up being something kind of abstract, kind of like a surface reflectance property. And then you can end up, it's a way of kind of saying, yeah, we can still talk about colors. They're just very different than how we naively thought. So that's the standard way of trying to preserve the truth values, as you said, of our ordinary ways of talking. But for the idealist, or at least as the idealist as I develop it, um, you kind of try to keep the two separate because, um, what I basically end up saying, this is a picture that is inspired by Kant, is that but you can just think of there as being two aspects of reality or two worlds, if you want. There is the world studied by the natural sciences and in particular, you know, quantum mechanics and something like that. And it's the fundamental world, and, you know, facts about what all the electrons and particles are doing that's ultimately going to explain why we have the experiences that we have. So that's where we respect the scientific results. But nonetheless, given that, you know, um, all the experiences that we have, you and me and everyone else, those experiences cohere in this kind of orderly way. So as to suggest what I call like the manifest world. And that's just the world as we normally experience it that has macroscopic objects and colors and things look solid and all that kind of stuff. And so what the idealist says is, when we talk about things and say like that water bottle is blue and something like that, we're not trying to make a judgment that really depends on what is going on at the quantum mechanical level in the world described by fundamental physics. Instead, all we're trying to do is make a judgment about this world that is coherently suggested to us by experience. So um, we're not trying to make judgments that ultimately whether they are true or false is going to hinge on how the fundamental physics turns out. We just need to be talking about, you know, what I would call just call the naive or, or the manifest world. So it's these two different um, areas of our lives that have truth values differently. So one way into this um, that I use sometimes in, in, in undergraduate classes is, you know, another way in which philosophers have worried about the world as we experience it versus the world as it as it really is kind of in the you know beyond us 
is with traditional skeptical scenarios, like the ones that Descartes and other philosophers had. So this is something that maybe some of your listeners have, if you've ever, these are kind of a classic philosophical topic. So like um, philosophers have wondered like, oh, you know, what if we are in the matrix or what in a kind of simulation or something like that? So this is actually a helpful way to illustrate what the idealist wants to say. So now it's like, normally people aren't trying to give scientific evidence for why we're in the matrix uh, where the idea is like, just imagine that this was possible. How could we rule it out? And so on and so forth. So I think the standard way that philosophers try to deal with this kind of worry about like, how could we know these things is that, you know, you might, the natural way that most of us would say is like, no, we're not in the simulation. And they try to give arguments for why that's implausible. You know, it's, we don't have the technology, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, um, I think that there's a very different kind of response that the idealist can offer, which is to say, you know, even if you were, if we somehow turned out to be in a kind of big simulation or whatever, nonetheless, that doesn't mean that we don't know anything because when we talk about things like our hands or bodies or the water bottle or things like that, we don't mean to be making judgments about what's going on like in the world outside of the simulation, this world that we've never encountered and have no experience of and could never access. Instead, what we care about is just the world that's right in front of us, the kind of world of the simulation, so to speak. So we, if you want to, so if it turned out that we were in a simulation, I'm not saying that we are, then like when we talk about the water bottle, we're just talking about the simulated water bottle, much like if you were playing a video game, you know, and you say, oh, bring over that, you know, those that treasure chest or something like that you're talking about something that's within the game there because that's what really matters to you when you're playing that game so too that's kind of what i think the idealist wants to say here we can separate kind of the world that's outside of us that may be very different than how we think maybe it's a quantum mechanical world or the skeptic, some skeptical scenario but what we really care about in day-to-day life is this world that's right around us that's the world that matters to us and we think of ourselves as living in so that's the one that we're talking about when we say things like, you know, there's my hand and we're talking on Zoom and here's a laptop in front of me. So I guess like in that sense, um, what I'm trying to see is like what the difference is between, I know I don't, maybe this is just the normal traditional sense of idealism, but it's often compared to realism. And so like when you're talking about these things about how you're interpreting, like, I guess the normal aspect of a day-to-day lifestyle, it seems like you're almost being like, like you're talking about real things. I guess realism isn't really necessarily that. It's kind of a more expand. It's like it's obviously more complicated than that. But is there a difference, I guess, between this concept and I guess the traditional notions of realism or like those two completely different things, not even within this debate? No, yeah, that's a great question. So like this is one thing that idealists are often misunderstood. So like the famous idealist, his name was Barclay, and he says, you know, he gave a, a, a line that was pretty much like this as he says um if you think that these objects are somehow kind of like beyond what we could experience then um you've you've alienated us from the world that we know and love that's all so then a lot of people in in the in the um barclay's work he's at pains to argue that he's not denying the reality of any of these things he's just he's not trying to say that books and tables and chairs aren't real he's just trying to say that they are closer to us and to our experiences than many philosophers think and this is the way to understand the distinction between realism and idealism at least as it is in this particular issue one definition of realism is that 
the truth of judgments in a certain domain are completely independent of our thoughts or experiences or judgments or whatever. So for example, in ethics, you have, you know, moral realists, and that's commonly understood to involve the claim that the truth of judgments like murder is wrong and stuff like that doesn't depend on our attitudes or anything like that, or experiences or beliefs and stuff like that. Um, so similarly here, um, realists would about like the physical world or about the world of objects and stuff would say that um, the truth of these judgments ultimately hinges on something that is independent of all of our experiences. So I think the way to cash it out is most realists, as I would use the term, think that in principle, like it could turn out that the world outside of us is so different from how we experience it, that we could always be wrong about the fact that there are objects. Maybe if we learn from quantum mechanics, some surprising review, it would show that like, in fact, there were no objects at all. Whereas the idealist says that in a sense, the that could never happen. The truth of these judgments is always going to instead depend on just the fact that we have experiences that coherently suggest objects. Um, there's no way that we could just be radically mistaken about the fact that there exist objects at all, or that time exists at all, or, or that colors exist at all. Okay, so it seems almost like a middle ground between having like extreme like scientific views and I guess like having extreme non-scientific views, right? Like it's like a medium where you guys like meet at the bridge and like you can kind of admire both at the same time. Is that kind of correct in terms of explaining that? Definitely. Yeah. So I think um, it's just any kind of idealism that's worth taking seriously would have to um, respect the fact that, um, you know, all the deliverances of physics and the natural sciences, because they provide us with so much insight about the world and what causes our experiences and all of that. So the ideal should take pains to make sure that their account is compatible with everything that science says about the world. And that's often, I mean, that's often the criticism of idealism. And a lot of my research is to kind of show that they are compatible. Um, but a lot of people worry that, um, you know, ultimately there's going to be some, some way that the two are intention. But the ideal for the idealist is to respect the science while also avoid the conclusion that the, the sciences could just undermine our normal sense of ourselves completely. So I think you put the right, point okay. for that middle view. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I mean, that seems kind of, uh, at least to me, almost natural uh, in terms of an interpretation. Um, I guess, like, you were talking about how your research is kind of like showing how, you know, science isn't able to, or shouldn't be able to undermine, I guess, the entirety of our, like, almost lived experiences. And so I guess I wanted to kind of wrap this specific topic about, like, idealism in the philosophical sense. I'll move on to, like, the traditional sense later. But yeah. I wanted to talk about kind of how the world, like, the philosophy world right now, like, what is that debate? Um, is there, uh, and then also like, what is the debate right now? Um, is there like more people leaning towards idealism or more people leaning towards, I guess, the, the scientific view? And then on top of that, um, what is like the kind of use case scenario? Um, is there any external impacts or, or external, I guess, like, yeah, impacts into like scientific fields, um, external impacts into how, how we teach students um, or how we teach kind of science? Um, how like, does this become less of a philo philosophical topic and more of a, I guess, like practical and engagement yeah. topic. Okay. Yeah. So several questions there. So um, 
let me start first with um, you asked about like, how is this debate playing out recently? I mean, I think in general, um, most, there's all different attitudes. I mean, there's definitely a big group of philosophers who think that all of our philosophical thinking of the world should start with the natural sciences. And they think almost this philosophy is a continuation of the natural sciences. So these are people who, um, you know, a lot of people who are keep up to date with the latest research in physics and in neuroscience or whatever, and, um, and are oftentimes arguing that these results, um, again, undermine this or that kind of conventional or normal view in about free will or about color or whatever, or space and time and so on. So there's many people who do that. Um, there are a lot of, there's been a recent surge in interest in idealism after um, it was kind of dormant for most of the 20th century. It was really popular prior to that, but then kind of went out of fashion. Now I'm, I'm glad to say that there's a bunch of people who are working on it again. And I also want to say that I've tried to motivate it as a view, kind of try to preserve our common sense understanding of ourselves. But there's a lot of other motivations for the view as well. Like some people are, some people are actually defend idealism um, because they think it helps to make sense of certain results in, in relativity and so on. So like we actually can't understand or interpret relativity in the correct way unless we are idealists. And other people are motivated more by thinking about perception and the mind-body problem. So there's a lot of different reasons why someone might be attracted to that view. But the nice thing is that more and more people are, are thinking about it. So now let me quickly move to your other question about the, um, the kind of practical importance of this issue. So one thing one reason why I think that reflection on these different types of cases where science can try, you know, seems to threaten or undermine our sense of ourselves and the idealist tries to push back about that. I mean, I talk about this in a lot of my classes and the reason I do it is because I want my students to really reflect on the different kinds of things that we as human beings find valuable and important. So the kind of thought experiment I ask them to think about when thinking about idealism and skepticism and stuff is like, suppose you were given the opportunity to, you know, you found out somehow, this is obviously imaginary, but you found out somehow that you were in this kind of simulation or something like that. Um, and suppose you were given the opportunity to leave the simulation kind of like in the movie, the matrix there, you know, they all want to get out to help. Anyway, I asked them like, well, what would you do in that kind of case? And naturally people's first thought, a lot of people's first thought is to think like, oh yeah, I would leave because I wouldn't want to be suffering an illusion and I wouldn't want my whole life to be a lie. And so I think that these are important things to think about, you know, they're, people are just, you know, we're curious. We want to figure out what this other world behind the, you know, behind the scenes is like. So I think that those are all great answers. But then I also kind of press them to think about the reasons that they might want to sort of stay in the simulation. Again, this is all thought experiment. We were just imagining that we had this choice, right? And so then we think about, 
well, what are the kinds of things that matter to us? When we think about like our projects and that we, you know, you want to become a doctor or you're interested in running marathons and stuff like that, or you're interested in, um, you know, your relationships and stuff like that. A lot of those things are just built into the fabric of this world as we experience it, you know, right here. So in a weird way, um, thinking about what seems to be a kind of abstract topic about idealism and, you know, what the truth values are of our judgments and all that is a nice way to do what I think a lot of philosophy should do, which is to prompt reflection on the things that matter to us um, most deeply as human beings. Now, I'm also, you, you said one other little thing in your comment about like, how could this um, be you know, relate to how we, you know, practice science and stuff like that. So this is something that I'm looking forward to do in the future. And it's, um, I haven't developed this yet, but much as I think that there's something to be said for trying to preserve our ordinary sense of the world from these kind of um, encroachments on science. Similarly, I think that there, I'm tempted, I'm, I'm interested in the idea that it can also mess up how we think about science or whatever, if we try to combine these two ways of thinking of ourselves and it could lead to confusion in that way. So in particular, I mean, just to give a very sketch example, sketchy example is I think that, you know, there can be a lot of confusion that results when you're thinking about special and general relativity, you know, Einstein's theory of space and time. When you try to import our naive views of space and time as the kind of thing we experience day to day and then somehow try to because you're not aware that there are these distinct ways of doing it, you try to like import that into understanding special and general relativity. So I think that, that it's kind of like, it, it serves both science and our ordinary sense of ourselves well to be clear on the fact that there are these two different ways of approaching the world that are each important sources of knowledge, but which are in some ways separate from each other. Yeah, definitely. I think that would be, um, you know, I can definitely see how it can cause confusion. Um, and I think like there's, there's probably a need to kind of explore those things, especially like when, when, when a lot of people go into like a science class um, and they like see kind of the insides of some everyday activity, but it's like, you, you don't really like think about it like deep, like to such a small level. Like for example, I'm taking AP chemistry. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I don't really think about molecular, like like I don't really think about the molecular shape of anything uh, when I'm like kind of going about life, right? But like my teacher's talking about how sugar is like carbon, and like I'm I'm like kind of figuring out a new form of understanding different common items in a scientific way, right? And so I think there's obviously probably some confusion when you kind of mix those two together, um, but definitely some importance also in the scientific view, but also in the in the regular view because you're not going to go around talking about like I don't know you you have traditional like words like you say water not h2o um all of those things have different like meanings almost um to to humans so i guess there's like a really interesting question there um in kind of how that confusion will play out but i want to shift the conversation more to kind of like a traditional sense of idealism um and I, I guess you were talking about this earlier in the way in which idealism can kind of be related with morality and i wanted to talk about that intersection, because I was recently going through like Peter Singer's, um, I guess it was, I think it was the New York Times article that he wrote mm -hmm. um, on like utilitarianism and how you have to like donate uh, anything that you have in excess to charity. And just on a first like read, it seemed a bit idealistic in the way he like treats human, like I guess behavior and nature, even though I guess human nature is very 
heavily debated upon, I guess, yeah. in the philosophy world. But, um, you know, just, I guess, like in a colloquial sense, right, human nature. And he treats yeah. the, also how he treats like the success of charity organizations, it seems he's quite optimistic about their impact, et cetera. And so I wanted to know if there's a concrete interplay between morality and uh, idealism in, I guess, the traditional sense. Yeah, that's a great question. And the answer is that there's, you know, these two are inseparable, I think. So many of the most important moral philosophers were just deeply preoccupied with moral ideals and, you know, Kant and Plato and they've a lot of, you know, the most important moral thinking that philosophers have done has been to present these kind of these visions of what, you know, the ideal moral agent would be like, or what, um, um, what ideals that we should strive for. So in the Peter Singer example, it's interesting. There's two senses in which from the the question that you just asked in which you might think that Peter Singer is being idealistic. So I'll distinguish the two of them. So one is being idealistic about human nature. And there I take it, your thought was like, people aren't actually going to do this, you know, like, cause they're more naturally selfish and stuff. Is that what you had in mind? Yeah. Um, and then there's also the one about being idealistic about the success of these charities and stuff. So um, I think that those two are different. Like I like the, um, the criticism you're making about the second kind of idealism, like the idea that you think that these charities are going to like maybe solve the problem all by themselves or just by, you know, people make this complaint just by throwing money at the problem. It's not going to solve food insecurity or something like that. So I think that that criticism that you were making or that concern that you had with singers, um, whatever singer was saying about that is well-placed and that, and that's partially because of, um, the stuff about human nature. You know, we just live in this really complicated world where problems are so much harder to solve than we think. And people are always more selfish than we'd like them to be. And um, this means that any kind of effort, even like really noble ones with great charities is going to be a really hard work. So I think that you're right, that we need to be realistic about the success of these things. Now, the other one about like being idealistic about human nature, like are people going to do this or whatever? That one's a bit more complex because... Um, I think it's true that, you know, most people are um, like, as they are right now, are not going to give 90% of their income away. So in that sense, that's being unrealistic if we actually thought that people like everyone in the population was going to do that or whatever. But it still seems to me that there's a really fascinating and deeply important um, idea here about Singer offering that as like what the ideal should be. And that that's something that he offers that like real people, not just saints should be like striving to do there. Um, I think that that's important for a few reasons. Like um, one is that oftentimes, um, so there's a, there's, there's a philosopher named Iris Murdoch that I've been reading a lot recently and she has this great quote that says that humans um, are creatures that paint pictures of themselves and then come to resemble that picture. So one is the idea that's a, you need to think that quote over before you, you understand it, but like, it's kind of like we often, and even philosophers have this, we look at how humans are and then we give a theory of it. And then we come to just expect people to be like that or whatever. But in fact, um, 
sometimes maybe by giving this ideal image or vision, it, it's, it can be a source of fascination for us that can get someone to kind of like challenge the assumptions that they've always had about how they ought to live or how they ought to act. Um, so there's something like very powerful about presenting this kind of new vision that's so different from how humans normally act. Um, I think it can be a kind of source of inspiration and can widen our imagination to what we could be as ethical beings. So that's one thing. And also, um, you know, I also, I kind of like the idea, you know, Singer makes being a good person like pretty hard. You know, like he's actually asking you to make a big sacrifice. And that's like, people don't like to hear that because it would be nice if it turned out that being a good person was just something that we could do by, you know, donating a little to charity here and there and like not killing people and stuff like that. But I kind of like these uh, iconic, you know, when, when a philosopher says that like, in fact, to be a morally decent person or to, to meet your obligations for being, you actually have to like do something like change the entire way that you're living. There've been a lot of moral philosophers and figures throughout history, you know, think of like, you know, Jesus or Plato or all these who thought that like being good is really, really hard. It's actually like, it's not that it's available and possible for everyone, but like most of us aren't going to get it because it takes a lot of sacrifice. I think that there's something kind of inspiring and um, truthful about that picture. So sorry to those, those kind of random thoughts. I like the, the idealism about like what we should be aiming for, but tying that with like a realism about the facts on the ground and not being like pretending like we're just going to solve a problem by just donating to charity or something like that. Right. Definitely. But I think also in a way, uh, maybe idealism can help kind of construct what we need to do um, mm -hmm. in order to have, I guess, like an ideal society. Um, and I guess I was going to ask you about your thoughts on this, like in terms of, you know, maybe you can forward or envision an ideal society to create real change. Like, for example, with gun laws, we can forward like an image of not having violence in schools with guns. And you can kind of forward um, kind of movement building and change based off of that. Is that correct? Yeah, I think so. Um, that's a, I mean, yeah, the gun control is so interesting because like, you would almost be tempted just from living in America and just seeing the news and this shooting, this shooting, this shooting, and just how many gun deaths there are to think that this is just like a problem that has to be there. Like any realistic like view of the world means that there are always going to be these maniacs who are, you know, shooting schools up and stuff like that. Um, but here is where there, I think could be a source of moral power there in like viewing in like imagining and having the imagination to think of like, it's weird that I have to talk about it this way is like being something that's hard to imagine, but like where people could, where school could just be a, a, a place where children, you know, flourish and are safe and secure and something like that. It almost, so like, I think we have the power to imagine that, but it's weird that if you just watch the news and stuff like that, you can almost, it starts to become harder to imagine just because it happens so much. So here is, I, I think, again, a great place where there's a, a role for these ideal visions is like, that the idea that there could be a society where we educate and allow children to flourish in a safe and secure environment is something like beautiful and inspiring and it gives us a kind of energy to try to approach this hard problem given like the state that we're in in our society and such it gives us more of an energy and drive to think about 
more creative ways maybe to address that issue. So I think that's a wonderful case to think about. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And then I guess um, because we have such as like a student focus on this podcast, I wanted to ask you in ways in which, you know, like what's a reason they should know about idealism or like strive for idealism aside from like, I guess maybe it's moral power or maybe that itself is the reason for why students could explore idealism or learn about idealism. Yeah, let me think about that question. Um, so I think a lot of the time what idealism involves in the sense that we're talking about it right now involving moral ideals is it presents like a new vision of the world around you. So I think what your students, like all of us in our society here, we are like, we inherit a certain vision of what the world is and what we should be aiming for and what, you know, what you should be going to college to do and what you should be, um, how you should interact with other people in the world and so on. And we kind of inherit that just from the culture that we're a part of, or maybe the family that we've been a part of or something like that. But one of the things the idealists can do when you're thinking about ideals is they present these kind of radical new visions of the world, kind of seeing the world like it's like you've taken the blindfold off and now you're seeing it in a new kind of place. So in a sense, you can think of that's what like what Peter Singer is trying to do. Um, I'm, I mean, I'm putting words in his mouth. I don't know what he'd say, but like a lot of people just like you're just in a society where you were told that you know, it's just accepted that like making a lot of money to like make, give yourself a comfortable lifestyle is like something that you ought to be aiming for. I'm not saying that this is like something, maybe the listeners of your podcast would think that's silly and being materialist and something like that. But like, I'm just saying in general, that's like a common thought that people have. They want to make a lot of money um, so that they can, you know, have a comfortable lifestyle somewhere. But now, then Singer comes along and in a sense, he's providing this like radical reversal of what, um, what would generally be viewed as valuable in our society. He's saying like, in a sense, you should try to give it all up. Um, not all of it, but like, you know, 90% of it or whatever, because like your main motivation in life should be trying to do the most good that you can for those who, especially those who are suffering or in great need. And that you have the power to do that, especially in the 21st century when you can do it just by clicking on a button or something like that. So that's just a wild thought, you know, that like probably hasn't crossed people's mind. But then you have someone like Singer, who's an idealist in this sense, that can kind of change your entire, why am I, you know, how is it okay that I like in becoming an investment banker or whatever, and like there are other people who need malaria nets and stuff like that. You know, I'm just, that's just one example. But I think that a lot of, other more philosophers are doing the same thing. Um, they're thinking, like the ways we think about race or about gender or about our treatment of other people or treatment, you know, how we raise children or whatever are just deeply flawed and we need a new vision of it. So thinking about these idealistic visions is something that I think is imperative for all of us. And yeah, the listeners of your podcast to be able to question those assumptions and stuff that are all kind of built into us just from living in the world. Yeah, definitely. That's a, that's a great point. And just to wrap this entire podcast up, I wanted to ask you, because I asked all my, all my guests about like what research you're doing now uh, and what you are up to now so that listeners of our podcast, uh, you know, if they're interested in following up, uh, they can go 
and, and check some out some of your research out. I'll definitely keep a link of your website in the description um, so you can check it out. But what, what are you up to, uh, I guess, now? Um, thanks for thanks for asking. So one thing that I'm interested in is I'm interested in aesthetics or beauty and specifically its significance for um, political disagreements and in trying to solve these kind of intractable political disagreements that we find ourselves having in the society. So oftentimes, you know, the way we try to get people to get vaccinated or to change their view on some issue of public health or gun control or whatever is you throw statistics, you throw statistics and you throw arguments and arguments, but a lot of the time it just doesn't work. It doesn't do anything. So then people are so like worried about this, like, oh, you know, we live in different realities and the facts don't help us. So then what do you do in this situation? How can you actually lead a society towards a more, like, you know, have more sane views on gun control or whatever the case may be. And here, um, I think something that has been underappreciated by philosophers and people thinking about this topic is the role that experiences of beauty have in changing our vision of what a society ought to be like. So kind of like the stuff that we were just talking about here. Oftentimes, um, if you think about the things that can really change a person deep down, it could be something like reading like this really beautiful book that like you know, changes their life. You know, we a lot of people have examples of that. Or it could be a friendship where you, someone acts in a loving way towards you and it kind of changes your view. It's a, so all this will sound kind of, you know, maybe naive, but I think that there's um, a real power that beauty has in being able to transform us and what we value. And that by thinking about beauty and its role in political debates, it can actually help us to think about how we could, you know, move society towards more just views on, or more just positions on, on a lot of ways in a way that isn't just kind of, you know, man, manipulative or whatever. Um, so that's one thing. And then also, I think um, you mentioned that you had Professor Vita Yao um, on the podcast earlier. So I'm actually writing a paper with her right now on the ontological argument and specifically how Iris Murdoch develops it, a philosopher I mentioned earlier. So the ontological argument is most traditionally known as an argument for God, but um, Murdoch spins it in a new way as being an argument for this kind of moral ideal that guides human life. So it's actually very closely related to the discussion of idealism that we've been talking about in the second sense. Um, and she thinks that this ideal of of being good is the kind of animating kind of magnetic thing that all of us are attracted to in our moral lives, but that um, that can help transform us to being better people is when we think about this moral ideal. So she uses argument for God and kind of transforms it to be an argument for this guiding moral ideal in human life. And so we are having, uh, we're writing a paper where we, we, develop this argument and try to defend it within the contemporary philosophical setting. So it's actually, it's, I, I love the fact that um, there is this segue between idealism in the consciousness sense and then idealism in the moral sense, because that's actually bridges between like the work I've been doing in the past on consciousness to like the stuff that I'm doing right now. So it's a great little uh, transition. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean that, that paper sounds like awesome, especially in the ways in which I guess it's just an interesting concept overall. Um, and I guess like idealism as a whole is such an intriguing concept in terms of like 
there's a lot of different aspects of it in terms of action, in terms of uh, good principles for life, uh, like the you know like Peter Singer, or just I guess in terms of motivating uh, yourself. Uh, idealism is you know in the traditional sense is really cool, but then also exploring in sense of the consciousness is pretty interesting, especially when it comes with debates about science. Like I feel like every day on Twitter, I see something new about science revelation. And there's always just like these haters in the comments or like, you know, there's always like these intriguing things. And so I guess there's always, uh, you know, this is why I like enjoy these conversations overall, because like they always, uh, you know, bring something new that, you know, to the table and kind of like inspire people or show people like a new world through philosophy, which I think is really, really interesting. Um, But that about wraps up our discussion today. Uh, I want to thank you so much for your time, Professor Smithson. Um, and, you know, I learned a lot, not just on, I guess, the consciousness related, conscious, consciousness related uh, idealism, but also like the the, the the traditional sense and how it's related with morality. So thank you so much. Yeah. And thank you for having me. And I hope that everyone can tell. I love talking about philosophy. This is it's just philosophy is like the best thing in the world. So this is awesome to your listeners that you're listening to podcasts on philosophy. Y'all should go and major it and study as much as possible because it's just so wonderful and just gets um, cooler and cooler the deeper you go into it. So thanks so much for having me.